Well, again, I'm going to welcome each of you to our gathering today. If I don't know you, my name's Kyle, one of the pastors here at Center Church. And as we get settled in, I want you to go ahead and we're going to open our Bibles, if you have them, to Hebrews chapter 12. We've got a lot to, to walk through and work through today, so I kind of want to just hit the ground running. But today, uh, we're going to uh, see the writer of Hebrews is going to move from these stories of faith that we saw in Hebrews 11, kind of back to this call for every believer to walk in faith themselves, rejecting the temptation to turn away or to turn back to something that they might perceive as more comfortable or secure in the face of pressure and persecution. If you know uh, anything about the letter of Hebrews, if you've been with us on this uh, many week journey uh, that we've been going through through this letter, what we know is that I mean, it was written to a group of Jewish Christians who were facing some pressure. And the temptation is for them uh, to, to go back, revert back to Judaism, what they once knew, what they once followed, instead of following this Jesus who has uh, revealed himself and redeemed their lives. And so the argument against that is don't do that, right? And so what we see, I think, as I as I study and I began to just kind of look at kind of this transition from the, the what is known as the faith chapter in Hebrews 11 to what we're going to work through in chapter 12 today. I, I see a, a bit of tension throughout this letter, uh, and it's a tension between a lie and the truth. And so as I thought about it, really the lie that we've been seeing and are still going to see is that security is found in what you perceive, what you can earn, or what you can obtain by any means necessary. The lie of the culture around us, the lie of really every other religion is, hey, uh, you can find security, you can find hope, you can find rest, you can have the peace you've always longed for. If you just perceive it with your mind, if you can earn it by what you do, or if you can obtain it really by any means necessary. And so we see that lie. You, you probably see that lie just presented in front of you all throughout your life, all throughout your day. But, but along with that, there is the truth. And the truth is this, that security is found in faith, which again, as Hebrews said, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, but it is faith in the person and work of Christ. It is the good news of the gospel that Jesus took our place. But also this faith in the person and work of Christ is a received faith and it is all of grace. Guess what? You cannot perceive this. Actually, scripture says this is uh, faith in Jesus is, is both is foolishness to other people. So you can't perceive it, nor can you earn it. And you most definitely can't obtain it uh, in and of yourself. You see, this faith, this security, this hope that is found in Christ and Christ alone is not based upon circumstance, but actually gives clarity and hope in and through all circumstances. Perception, earning and obtaining can't make that promise. And so as you look at your life even now, uh, what does your life say? As you think about and reflect, maybe on your week or on just your daily life, uh, as you see those two uh, battling things, man, do you find yourself uh, in the perceived, earned, and obtained category? 
Or do you find yourself resting in the person and work of Jesus? My hope and prayer today for everyone in here is that uh, you would rest in who Christ is and what he has done. You see this through any circumstance good news. We we saw last week as Jeremy finished out uh, Hebrews 11. It proved itself last week, but also I believe that it's going to be shaped further this week. You see, the writer closes out the faith section of the letter. And in it, we saw that, that a faith that is ignited by grace do, does one main thing. It treasures the gospel above all. Which kind of leads into our first core value here at the church is that we cherish the gospel above all. And because of this, we saw in the text last week that we respond with faith in our lives. When the gospel ignites our hearts, we respond in faith to this good news. That's the only response you can have when the the, the good news of the gospel does work in your life. When it brings you from death to life, you live differently. You see, we walk in victory knowing that Jesus defeated death, even if that walking is marked by suffering, because we trust that in all things Jesus leads us through. And so this truth is then expounded on a personal level. Today, as we as we look, as we've seen all these great stories of faith and the people of faith, what we're going to see today is that the the writer is going to hone in and get a bit more personal this week in terms of what it looks like to live a life of faith. You see, because if we stopped at the end of Hebrews 11, what we could do and those reading the letter could argue, well, of course they had faith. Look at them. Look at Moses and Abraham and Rahab and these big uh, people of the faith that we read in Scripture. Of course they had faith. I'm not like them. See, I believe uh, an issue that we have in church culture, uh, I believe it's broadly in all culture, but specifically even in church culture is we uh, do this thing called hero worship. So we look at people throughout scripture and and we begin to forget that they, uh, aside from Jesus, are sinners like you and me who had very high highs that God used, but also if you read through, they had really low lows as well. They were in need of the same grace that we're in need of. I believe that's what the writer is doing here, is writing about these people that had great faith, but now is honing in and saying, hey, what's about your faith? The writer is actually going to argue something totally different today. You see, because what we know from Scripture is that Jesus is the only hero in the story of redemption. He has all authority and he deserves all the glory. The next thing we know is that Jesus saves to the uttermost, but also that he leads us through all the waters throughout life. And so with that, I want to continue by reading, beginning in Hebrews 12, we're going to read verses 1 through 3, where we find this call to run the race set before each and every one of us. You're going to see two primary things today. First, you're going to see that for the believer, we all have a race to run. But secondly, as believers, we need to know what to do with this term or uh, these moments in life where we're disciplined. And so let's read verses 1 through 3. It says this, Therefore, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, 
the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So, as we hear that text... As we begin to engage in what is this great cloud of witnesses, I begin to reflect on my childhood. And so as a kid, for a time, I had the semblance of what many would describe as a basketball goal at my house. Now I say semblance because while it was a basketball goal in form, it was not such by the definition of regulation basketball rules, okay? So when I was in the fourth or fifth grade, I got this goal and we lived in a house. And uh, at that time, they didn't have goals you could move around. You had to just concrete it in the ground. And so we did that. And man, I loved this basketball goal. Basketball was kind of my thing that I loved to do. And so I shot on that thing all the time. But guess what? We rented the house and ended up having to move. And so my uncle came. And my uncle, I don't believe even as of today, I've ever seen him play a sport, talk about a sport, know anything about a sport at all. He comes over and he says, I'm going to move the goal for you to your new house. I said, oh, that's amazing. And so what he did was he took his cutting torch and he went to the base of the goal and he just cut it off right there at the base. And then he brought it over to the house and I get told, hey, uh, Mark, your Uncle Mark is bringing the goal over today. It'll be set up when you get home. And I was like, oh, this is going to be amazing. I've been waiting on this thing. I haven't been able to play any ball lately, so I, I can't wait. And I get home, but things, again, while it was a goal in form, it was not a regulation goal anymore. Because what he had done is he had actually built a little more of a base, but he didn't know how tall a goal was supposed to be. So he just put it in the ground. And then he just, he, he said, okay, well, it's a little, he could tell it was a little low. And so he raised it up and he took two pieces of metal and he welded it at whatever looked good. And so I get home and I see this goal that should have been set at 10 feet, but my goal was set in place at about nine feet, eight and three quarters inches. High enough to not make me any better at regulation basketball player in practice, but for a seventh grader, low enough to make me the greatest basketball player to ever come out of 808 South Avenue J in Clifton, Texas. I remember playing on that goal, and while it wasn't what I ultimately wanted, man, it, it caused my mind and imagination to flourish. Any of you as a child, like you just, you remember maybe playing basketball or, or, or throwing the football or playing baseball and you just, in your mind, you're just imagining like being in the big leagues, right? I remember like I would always be out there and, and, and I would be dribbling and, and the game would be on the line and I was the greatest of all time. And guess what? The shot clock always had more time on it. Three, two, one, shoot, miss. No, no, that was an off the ball foul. Uh, and we're not in bonus, so I'm not shoot. We're going to take the ball one second, you know, and over and over again, I would play this out. But you see, the other thing that I, I remember vividly in my mind is that the crowd was never louder and more supportive of me. <sighs> Kyle, 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 Kyle. Everyone had the sign that I had in eighth grade basketball. My friend made it. And every time I would score, he would hold it up and it would say more Ogletine, please. Not Ovaltine. You'll get it. Parents, tell your children what Ovaltine is. Uh, 
But I, I remember in my imagination, like the, 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 the cheering, the encouragement, the, the, the lauding of my basketball supremacy. Now, some of you, maybe you're even in the moment reminiscing about your own carport balling days. And some of you might just find yourself sitting in this room thinking, where in the world are we going? Well, the reason I share that story is because the writer calls uh, for those he's writing to to imagine for a moment what it means for us to run the race of faith as believers in light of the faith stories we've seen. And in it, we get the same call to imagine a crowd cheering us on, not because we are the greatest, but because we follow and have faith in Jesus, the one whom all praises do. You see, the writer of Hebrews transitions from these great stories of faith, which again are to be both an encouragement and motivation to our own lives of faith, to this call to display it or live faith in our own lives. Even when it's not easy or smooth. And it begins with a call to imagine ourselves. The setup here is a coliseum. And you're getting ready for the race of your lives. But as you get ready to run, as you're stretching out, as you're uh, envisioning uh, what the race is to look like, what we find to begin Hebrews 12 is that we're surrounded by the greatest cheering section that history has ever compromised or com- comprised. For the same greats of faith found in 11 and all those who weren't mentioned and came after have filled the stadium and they're doing two things. First, they're witnessing. They're bearing witness to the good news of enduring faith. A faith that speaks life even in the face of death. Even while looking forward to the hope that would come in Jesus. But secondly, they're encouraging. You see, they look at our lives and the race before us. And they encourage us not by saying, look at what I did. But by directing the focus to the perseverance found in faith. And what they're doing in this moment is they're telling us to continue on. They're saying, by faith, you can do it. Because guess what? Their faith bears the weight of that truth. And it's with the stage set before a crowd bearing witness and encouraging us to continue in faith that draws the writer to call those he's writing to and us today to display and live out faith in a few different ways. Look at what the passage says. First, we are to lay aside or to throw off every weight or sin that seeks to cling to our lives and hinder our running. So to lay aside or to to throw off was an actual act that was performed by athletes during uh, during Greco-Roman culture. What would happen is uh, before a race... Uh, actually, the, those that were competing would actually strip themselves of everything. So they would run naked as to not be hindered by their clothing. Remember, they wore robes and cloaks that would not make running easy. And so they freed themselves of anything that might slow them down. And so the writer uses this metaphor as a way to call us to live lives that are marked by the freedom that comes by way of the gospel rather than weighing ourselves down with any hindrance or sin. And so let's look at the first. It talks about what is it? Throwing off a weight or throwing off hindrances. So a hindrance is anything that while in and of itself could be good... 
hinders you or weighs you down spiritually. This could be a relationship, a hobby, a passion, a pursuit, a job, an event, a pleasure, or even a means of entertainment that, while not bad, takes away from living a life of faith. So think for a moment, what might be an example of this in your life? Like what comes to mind in your own life that is something that, while maybe not bad, is a hindrance to your walk of faith? Netflix? Discovery Plus, Paramount Plus, Disney Plus, like Peacock. Like don't, don't be like, well, I don't have Netflix, but you got all the other ones, right? Like don't, like let's not pick and choose. You know what I'm saying here. Uh, you know, social media. Work can even be something that while inherently good, like you can overdo it in ways that you're hindered in your gospel witness. Shopping. Extracurricular activities, your kids' extracurricular activities. You see, while all those things aren't bad, they can take away from the true call of your life, which is to live as a radically transformed disciple of Jesus. And so we see we're to throw off hindrances, but next we're to throw off sin. Now, now of the two, this seems to be the most logical, right? The phrase, I love what the writer, the writer uses the phrase, sin that clings so closely. And I believe that it's used because it is meant to get to the depths of each of our lives so that we might really look at what is hindering us from following Jesus. And I believe that this sin that is specific to each one of us. Now we all understand that we all struggle with general sins. We all uh, struggle with a litany of different sins, but we also struggle with particular sins that are specific to our own individual lives and they must be dealt with accordingly. The struggles that I have with impatience and anger and, and control may not be the same sins you struggle with in a specific deep sense, although you still might struggle with those. But you too have Specific sins that seek to cling to you. My struggle might not be your struggle and your struggle not mine. But we're still called to fight sin with fervency so that we won't be entangled by it. A question that we ask in the office and our elder candidates. We, a question that we asked kind of in the beginning of the process was. Uh, it, it, what's one sin that would seek to trip you up and take you out. Well, what's the well, what's one sin in your life right now that you know is a temptation or something that would seek to trip you up and take you out? I believe that's a great question that we should be asking ourselves. And so what that means is that one, we need awareness to ask ourselves that question. That we might not be blinded to our own brokenness and need. But that we would regularly ask the Spirit of God to reveal, is there anything unclean within me? Is there anything inside of me that needs to be dealt with? Expose it, reveal it, so that I, by your grace, might fervently fight against it. But also, that's why I believe we need others. 
I, I, I encourage you to ask someone that you're really close to, be it a spouse, a close friend, someone that knows you really well, that question. Not about them, but about you. Hey, what, in my life right now, what's one thing you see that, that, that might be a blind spot for me or maybe something I'm even aware of and I'm not dealing with it that, that the enemy could use to trip me up and take me out? And then allow them to respond. And then you don't respond back with excuses or but, 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 or, well, you just look at you, right? Like, no, wrestle with it. Take it to the Lord and say, God, is there anything in this? May I be humble enough? And whatever it is that we would cast it off so that it wouldn't entangle and snare and trip us up. We do that through repentance, faith, and also, I believe, accountability. This leads to the second act of the text, which is as we cast off, as we throw off, we're to run. We are to run. You see, when we cast off that which weighs us down, the next logical step, the exciting part that we like but can't do if we don't take step one seriously, is that we run. But look at how the text just doesn't say run. First, we see that we are to run with endurance. This is the call to endurance that we saw in chapter 10. That is marked by living a life of faith that develops into humble faithfulness. Guess what? A life of faith, while in, in instantaneous in terms of our salvation, it is a process of growing faith throughout our lives and sanctification. And so we run with endurance, a growing endurance. But secondly, I want you to hear this. We run our race. Let me repeat that. You run your race. I run my race. I think this is key because for each of us, we are only called to run our race, not everyone else's race. And I believe maybe there's people in the room or I believe we all have a tendency where we decide, hey, I'm going to run their race for a little while. Not that we don't support others along the way. Not that we see it in Scripture with Moses and he's weak and tired and the, the battle is raging and so people come alongside and help hold his arms up. But ultimately, God has called you to run your race. As I read and thought on this, I was reminded of Peter in John 21. I've been studying John 21 recently. And, and what happens is Jesus shows up and, and they're around a fire. And, and it's this moment where Jesus begins to deal with Peter's sin and brokenness. And so he asks him three times, Peter, do you love me more than these, right? And Peter's response is, you know I love you. You know I love you. You know I love you. And Jesus' response back is, feed my sheep, tend my lamb, feed my sheep. Peter looks up and sees John, the way the text is written, it says the one whom Jesus loved. Uh, and he says, well, what about that guy? What about his race? And I love what Jesus, Jesus says, who cares if I let him live forever? You follow me. Feed my sheep. You see, the same call is for each of us. You can only run your race. 
You don't have the endurance to run yours and someone else's. And you can't try to run another's race because theirs seems easier and more fun than yours. I believe that's another problem that we have in the church today is because of hero worship, because of, because of the reality that we glamorize the race in ways that distract and, and says that, that our identity uh, is found in how fun and successful the race is in the eyes of others by way of likes and follows and pats on the back. We forget to just follow point three. We, we allow ourselves... To be encumbered by the weights and the sin of, uh, of point one. So we don't run well because ultimately we're called to look to Jesus while we run. Again, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is our greatest model. Jesus is the motivator, the igniter, and the sustainer of our faith. You see, as we run our race, the encouragement of others' faith only takes us so far because we, like them, have to look in faith to Jesus, who, as the text says, is the author and perfecter of our faith. By author, what it means is that Jesus ignites and inspires our faith. There is no faith apart from Jesus. Jesus would even say it, no one comes to the Father except through me. But also, He's the perfecter of our faith. What that means there is that Jesus, because of His love and care, uh, is that He develops our faith as disciples. This development, I believe, is key in the next part of our text for today. And so the question, I think this begs the question as we look to Jesus, like, what are we looking at? Well, first, and the text doesn't articulate it, we look at the person of Jesus. We look at his sinless life, but we also look at the work of Jesus. Specifically in the text, we get three marks of his faith. First, he endured the cross. Jesus endured the brutality. Jesus took our place on the cross. He lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death we deserved to die. A couple of days ago, I was playing basketball with my oldest son and uh, we were shooting around and I was trying to humble him and uh, and uh, and so uh, it's an eight foot goal I'm pretty good at that kind of height level uh, and so we're, we're playing and I, I just began to just ask him questions Jesus what or what does it mean to be saved I don't know. And so I just started pressing and just began to just kind of ask questions about the good news of the gospel and the hope that's only found in Jesus. And, and he's resting. I said, what is it, what is it, what does it take to, to, to be a follower of Jesus? How, how do you get to heaven? And he, you know, he's given the typical answers of, well, just be a, you know, go to church or read your Bible or be baptized. And so I keep pressing it further and I say, okay, well, um, you know, what, what does the Bible say? What do we have in our hearts that, that keeps us from God? And he's like, I said, it starts with an S. And immediately he goes, sin. It's like, yes, good job, sinner kids. Uh, and, and so uh, he, we start talking about sin. I was like, you know, um, I said, 
you know, but sin, it separates us. So what, if we, if we have sin, like we can't get to God. He's like, yeah, we can't. And I said, okay, well, well, what is it? You know, who, who took our place? You know, who? And he's like, I, I need to think on that. And I'm like, well, what are we, what are we always talking about? What's the answer? And he's like, well, Jesus is the answer. And I'm like, yes, son. And so I said, did Jesus have sin? And he said, no, no, daddy didn't. I said, well, so did Jesus deserve to go on the cross? And he said, yeah, yeah, he deserved that. I said, but, but Jesus didn't have sin. He said, yeah, he didn't. I said, and guess what? Like the cross was a punishment for, for, for uh, um, man, for sin and brokenness. But Jesus didn't have that. I said, but do you have sin? And he said, I have sin, Dad. I said, does Daddy have sin? He said, yeah, you have sin too. I said, but, I said, guess what, Jude? Jesus went to the cross for you. He, he, he went to the cross for me. We deserve to be there. And his face just kind of changed like this, this light. And he was like, he, I could tell that he was wrestling with this reality of the brokenness he had and what he deserved. But what Jesus had done. And then guess what? We just started playing basketball again. And then my hope and prayers that we continue to process and talk about that and, and, and lay that out ever before him. That guess what? Jesus endured the cross for you. He took its brutality. He took your sin upon himself because he didn't have any. But the second thing we see is that Jesus despised the shame. You see, the cross was meant to pour shame upon the individual being crucified. But Jesus cast off the shame and willingly went to the cross. Jesus said, no, not my will, but your will be done. And then lastly, we see that he rose in victory. And I love that his victory is marked in the text by him sitting down. Because guess what? His work was finished. But he doesn't just sit down. He sits down at the right hand of the Father in all authority. But, but there's one more thing in this text that I don't want us to miss, and it's this, is that he did all of this because of the joy set before him. You see, that joy was that redemption would come. That joy is that he would fully submit to the Father's will. That sin, death, and the grave would be defeated and he would make all things new. That's the joy before him. And that joy... Let him to the, endure the cross and despise the shame, but also it brought him out on the other side in victory. Seated with all authority. Therefore, as we look to Jesus in the midst of the race of faith, we are to recall and remember him in the face of the temptation to believe the lie that security, hope, and the finish line is found in anywhere else other than Christ. Especially when we are weary and faint-hearted, don't look elsewhere. Keep looking to Jesus. And so with this call to run our race with endurance that looks to Jesus in and through all things, I want to move now to another call to continue on, even in times of discipline. Like, what do we do with this reality of uh, being a people that are also disciplined? Let's read verses 4 through 11. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addressed you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. 
It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall not... Much, shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Okay, so with verses 1 through 3 before us on our journey of faith, the writer expounds upon this call to display lives of faith that look like Jesus and not one circumstance by honing in on how endurance is shaped by the discipline that comes through our lives being sanctified more into the image of Jesus. As followers of Jesus, we need to have a gospel perspective when it comes to discipline so that we might find hope in what God is ultimately doing in and through us rather than getting stuck in the circumstances, the hardships and trials that we might experience. See, again, the lie of cultural Christianity is that you follow Jesus and nothing bad should ever happen to you. That you should get what you want when you want it. And you can ultimately just coast through life carefree at no cost to you. You see, the truth of the gospel according to Jesus is that following Him is a call to die daily. That in His wor- in this world you will have trouble. And that there will be many moments of wondering why certain things happen the way they do. But our response is to be like Jesus's. Again, looking to Him as the ultimate model and proclaiming, God, not my will. I don't understand this, but not my will, but Your will be done. I think another reason this is key is because I know my heart. And while I am redeemed by the blood, I still seek to run my own kingdom at times. And praise God that He won't allow that to be so. And so this is why moments and seasons of discipline are important. You see, this is another moment in this letter when the writer is calling for those to whom the letter is written and us today to grow in endurance over complaint. How many of you, when you reflect on just when discipline comes to your life, your first response is complaint, not expectation? Again, pressure and persecution brought with it the temptation to seek the easy way. And it still does today. But look at what the writer does to combat this in the life of every believer. First, we see in verse 4 that while their struggle against the temptation of apostasy in the face of outside pressures, has, he says it hasn't gotten so harsh that it's cost you your life yet. He says you haven't shed blood for this yet. It is another way to remind them and us that others have faced far worse in their faith. I mean, look to Stephen and others in the early church. And for us, the list goes on and on and on. Your Jim Elliott, your Dietrich Bonhoeffers, just to name a couple. But it's not just the ones that are named. There are many who, who we won't know of until glory. They gave their lives for the sake of Jesus. Jesus. 
And this leads to the next call to endurance through discipline where the writer uh, essentially does two things. First, we get this reminder that we should not be surprised by these things. But secondly, we shouldn't be distraught by them either. You see, as we read and come to know the Scriptures, they share with us the reality of what walking in faith is like. And it brings transformation and even suffering. And guess what? Both come at cost, but it's worth the cost. The writer then turns to Proverbs 3 in the text to remind us that discipline and endurance are a mark of faith as legitimate sons and daughters who are loved by God. Discipline, according to Hebrews, and I would argue all of Scripture for the believer, is a mark of love, not scorn. Which brings up a point that I think we need to know regarding God's discipline of the believer, and it's this. Discipline in this text towards the believer is never punitive in form. You see, when God disciplines His children, it is not a wrathful discipline because Jesus has already received our wrath. Rather, it is a means by which God sanctifies us in ways that grow our understanding of the gospel and lead us to greater faith and obedience. You see, I think the question that we often ask in moments of discipline, suffering, and hardship is, why are you doing this, God? And while I believe that God is big enough for that question, if you don't believe me, like look at the Psalms. I think the question we should also be asking is, God, what do you want to do through this in me? And what do you want to do through me so that others might know you? Because again, the writer presents the argument here in the text. All discipline is a mark of our adoption as sons and daughters of God the Father. Therefore, conviction of sin and discipline through struggle for the believer should be seen as a grace to our lives. Because it reveals our adoption. And to make this point, to hammer it home, the writer says, if there's no discipline, there's no conviction, it is a mark of God's wrath and reveals you're an illegitimate child. And so today, if you you feel that, that discipline and conviction, see it as a grace. But today, if you don't, one of two things. Maybe you're a legitimate son or daughter, but your heart is just a bit hard towards sin. And you need to allow the Spirit of God to... To, to convict and, and to draw you to repentance and obedient faith. But two, maybe today you're an illegitimate son or daughter. And guess what? The love is available. The grace is available for you today. Heed the call that he has placed the wrath on his son. Turn to him today in repentance and faith. The writer then in closing gives three reasons why we should see discipline as a grace. Which for me, like at times, is hard to comprehend because I don't like it. First, we have earthly fathers or parental figures that that disciplined us and we respect them. You see, healthy discipline from parent to child, while not perfect and maybe not understood as a child, will later be seen as something deserving of respect. I remember growing up, there were many things that my mother did that that I can look back on and be like, yeah, that wasn't okay, (laughs) right? But there are also things that I look back on and I'm like, oh man, I respect her for that because she loved me enough and cared about me enough to say no or to say not that way. 
And so how much more then are we to accept and respect God who disciplines us in better ways than our parents ever could? Because guess what? God knows us better. One of the reasons your parents, like, they could only parent you to a certain extent is because guess what? And it doesn't take long for children to learn this. They deceive, they lie, they manipulate the situation. And we all did it with our parents. Whereas, no, I didn't do anything. Or we paint it in a different lie. But guess what? We can't do that with God. Which is why He can discipline us in better ways because He knows us better. He knows us fully. But not only does he know us better, he parents better, which leads to reason number two, which is while parents met out imperfect discipline, God is perfect, gracious, and loving in his. So let me take a poll really quickly. How many parents do we have in the room? How many people in the room were parented at someone? Everybody. You know, we are all children. We have some form of parental figure. Now, how many of you as parents are batting a thousand in the discipline department. No hands, I figured. Like I look at our kids and man, I praise God that he's a better father than me. But you know what that should do? And at times it's like it should lead us to point that out to our children. It should lead us to point that out to anyone who will listen. Well, I am imperfect. No, let me point you to the one who's perfect, who loves better and deeper. You see, I'm a poor dad at times, but God is not. I discipline selfishly for the sake of my good, but God disciplines perfectly for the sake of our good. So this leads to the final point of discipline, which is that we should not run from it because while it seems painful at first, it eventually yields the peaceful fruit of the spirit of righteousness for all who are trained by it. You see, he is a better father that cares for us far better than we can fully understand. But let us not shy away from discipline, knowing that it is a mark of his love and grace for us as his children. And so how do we respond to this text today? I think there's a few ways. First, be encouraged by the witness and encouragement of those before us and around us. Also, we should encourage faith in one another by witnessing to the fruit of faith in our own lives. If you see someone struggling, go to them and say, man, I'll continue to have faith. And then share with them how God has worked his faith out over and over and over again. In your life. His faithfulness. Next. Cast off the weight and sin. That seeks to hinder your running. And so today. Do you need to take a break for a time. Or forever for something that hinders your walk of faith. Maybe it's food. Or drink. Maybe it's media. Work habits. Like I encourage you. Like even just to reflect on that. And pick one for this week. And just say. Okay. I'm going to stop that for this week. When I feel the need for it, I'm going to pray instead. And secondly, repent of sin, cling to grace and seek accountability. Ask that question, what's, what's one sin that maybe I'm not aware of or I am aware of that's seeking to trip me up and take me out? Next, run your race. Run it with endurance found in faith. And look to Jesus at all times. 
Don't despise or be distraught by discipline when it comes. Remember, it is not punitive for the redeemed, but transformative, but a transformative grace for our lives. But also today, for the unbeliever, it proclaims your need for new life in Christ. And so I implore you today, if you don't know Jesus, if you haven't, have that faith hasn't been ignited in your soul, my prayer is that it will be, and that you would stop believing the lie, and that you would look to the truth of the gospel. And if you want to know about that, come talk to me. And then lastly, allow discipline to transform and bear fruit in your life. And it seems hard and harsh for a moment, but guess what? Like it bears good fruit eventually. Just allow it to do its work of pruning and shaping and transforming. So I'm going to have the team come back up. And I want to invite you for a moment just to reflect. I'm going to pray and then um, yeah, I want you to respond. And we're going to do that in a couple of ways. Maybe uh, you need to, to walk through some of those areas of response today. And I want to allow you the space and time to do that. Secondly, if you're a follower of Jesus, we want to invite you to come and share in the table. We're going to receive communion together as God's people. And so uh, here in a moment, we'll have uh, some guys come up and they will present the elements, the bread and the juice. And in doing so, we do it as a reminder of he who endured the cross, who despised the shame and rose in victory. If you're not a believer today, we ask that you would abstain because, man, we believe that this is in this reminder. It, it was costly. So we do not take it lightly as followers of Jesus. And then lastly, we're going to sing together in worship the reality that the good news is really good news. And so, Father, I pray as we reflect and respond, that we uh, would do so with the reminder that there's a cloud of witnesses that have gone before us and that are amongst us. May we not forget that. That we would cast off the things that seek to hinder, the sin that seeks to cling so closely, that, that we would run the race with endurance, looking to you, the author and perfecter of our faith. And God, even in the midst of it, in the moments that, that we would uh, respond to, to discipline and see it as a grace for our lives to be transformative, not, not, not simply to our actions, but to the depths of our souls. And God, that would so ignite in us a faith because of that grace that we would proclaim this hope, the only hope that can give us rest and security and life to the world around us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.